We're going to be continuing in our study of the Minor Prophets, and we are in the last of the Minor Prophets, the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, and this is our second week here. Uh, Todd will actually be back next week and is going to take the next two chapters, uh, really most of chapter three and, and four over the next couple weeks and conclude that. Where we go in next after that is to the parables of Jesus uh, and, and taking about uh, three months or so to look at just various parables and uh, just uh, what he was uh, teaching through those, why he taught in parables and, and what might we have. It's also a great thing for summer knowing that people are going to be in and out rather than a building series. Uh, it'll be uh, people be able to come in and kind of know where we are in terms of that. So, um, uh, so that's kind of where we're headed. Uh, so this has been a great series. Uh, it's actually been uh, just enjoyable for me just to put it together, just to be in the midst of uh, books that we often don't read very often, or maybe even think like, what in the world does this have to do uh, with today's uh, life? And so uh, Malachi is no different. Um, this one is not very cryptic. Uh, it, there's a couple things in there, but for the most part, it's pretty straightforward, and it's just asking God's people, as God is faithful to us, are we faithful to him? And uh, so would you stand as we want to open the word, and God's going to speak, and hopefully we would listen and hear what he says. So starting in verse 6 of chapter 1, uh, God says, a son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where's my honor? And if I'm a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present, uh, that, uh, present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now, entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us, with such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that you were one, um, uh, oh, that there was one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has made a male his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. 
For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces and dung on your offerings. We'll look at this, don't worry. And you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life in peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and the people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts." But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You've corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Let's pray. God, I ask that your word would speak to us this morning. Father, that we would not be mere hearers, but that we would become doers. But Father, I pray that if our doing has any sense of that is what makes us right in your sight, God, would you block that by the Spirit, because that is not uh, the gospel. That is not how salvation comes. Would our doing follow after what faith really is, that salvation is from your hand, that you are the covenant-keeping God, And that as we know you, we become and learn uh, what it is to be transformed by that and to be faithful people to you. So God, I pray that that all of that would come this morning. God, give us insight into your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Be seated. So in our house, I am the math tutor. uh, And so we were recently in algebra doing quadratic equations, Uh, and for those of you who are not the math person, that's basically an equation that has a square, x squared or something like that in it, and and so factoring quadratic equations, and and so it's really easy to get tied up in a knot when you're working with quadratics, no no question about it, and and so we, we were just talking and looking at, like, all right, the first thing you have to do is look at that sign before the last term. Uh, because if you don't, then you're going to easily, your brain will probably switch signs. Because if it's a positive, it could be two terms that have a positive or a positive, or also a negative and a negative. And if it's a negative, then it's going to be one of each. And if you don't look at that, your brain will actually put these things together in some funny way, and your signs will actually follow what your brain says if you don't look at the sign of the last term. Okay? Now, if that didn't make any sense, ask the math person next to you. Okay? Yeah, it is. It is. There's a way to do things, but if you don't follow it, you kind of end up 
in some difficult places. When I was learning to play golf about you know, seven, eight years ago, when I started lessons, I remember saying, um, I don't know anything. And teach me as if I'm absolutely clueless, because I was. And, but then, in the first two lessons, I'm literally wrestling, uh, wrestling, as uh, my teacher's trying to put me in a position, and my body's like, no, that is wrong. That is absolutely wrong. I finally believed him, and then even later, it's amazing that I keep oftentimes thinking I know something better, and I don't. Oftentimes when we're thinking about teenagers and students and entering into high school and college, Lynn and I, uh, we, we heard a speaker a while ago and we've borrowed this phrase that we would love to give them 20-year glasses. Meaning like the wisdom and the experience of 20 years, like if we could take off the experience that we learned and give them these lenses that they could see while they're in high school what life Uh, really looks like 20 years later, wouldn't that be an amazing thing, right? Because there is a way uh, that life tends to work, and a lot of times you figure it out uh, by wisdom, but here we are in student ministry or with our kids saying, hey, here's how life works. This is what is happening. Please listen to me. And like every high school student known to man, you know what, I think I know better. And then in college, I think I even know better than that. And then mid-adulthood, you're like, wow, my parents know what they're talking about. It's interesting, even when we are taught, even when we are showed a better way, even when we're told how to do math the right way, how to do golf the right way, how to do life the right way, or with wisdom, it's interesting, there's something in us that wants to do life our way. And our culture is right there reinforcing that. You know, culture says, you be you, right? Or be who you are. Or don't let anybody tell you how to live. Don't tell me how to live. You know what? It's your life. Don't let others tell you how to live it. And you, or, or any version of that sentence that is pretty close. We live in a culture uh, that makes Uh, us really think that we get to define reality. I can do whatever I feel. And modern parenting, which is really scary, is let children discover who they are. The problem is, is that we know because we were children, and we understand from the scriptures and we see it, children are inherently foolish. They don't understand that an oven or a stove is hot until you tell them or until they touch it, right? And so with children having an inherent foolishness, we were all there too and maybe still be. They need to be led and guided in the right way away from foolishness, not be left to their own devices to discover who they are. It's the fatal flaw in modern parenting is that uh, to let the foolishness of the child dictate the direction of their life. Why is that flawed? Because all thoughts and feelings, well, the thought is all thoughts and feelings are good, right? At least that's what culture says. We need to affirm all thoughts and feelings. And the scriptures say, no. And your heart says, no. But living in that kind of world, we gain this subtle understanding 
uh, this under, under, that we get to define reality. And that's what you've heard being said and modeled to you, but God challenges us with this. You know, you've heard that said, right? You've heard it said, you be you, you define reality, you get to live however you want. And then God comes along and says, but I say to you. And God says, my word defines how you should live. You will find life living in me and for me. You were created to know me and to do life that I, as I created it. Yet oftentimes we think we know better. What's interesting is God is saying that his redeeming love ought to have a transformative effect on the way we live and what we do. And instead, much like the people of Malachi, we find ourselves dishonoring him, not taking him at his word, and being unfaithful to the covenant that he makes with you and with me. Or us. We don't respond faithfully to the gospel. Our lives don't match uh, the love that God has shown to us, and it's God's love that's meant to transform us. And so, as we looked at last week, we looked at last week in the, in the covenant love of God. So, since God loves his people with a covenant faithfulness, we must respond with covenant loyalty to him. His covenant faithfulness our response of covenant loyalty. And so, uh, basically, there, there's this honor that God deserves. Okay, and, and as you read Malachi, you'll get this sense that the literary device of Malachi is satire. You know, it, it's kind of like God says something, and then he challenges the, the thoughts and, and what's being said of his people, and he's speaking to the half-hearted or negligent worship or obedience of his people. You know, God says this, and they do sort of that. Uh, or they do their own thing. And so it shows up in verse 6, as we already read, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I'm a father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where's my fear, says the Lord of hosts, O priest who despise my name. So remember, their challenge uh, from earlier in chapter 1 was where God says, I loved you. And they say, how have you loved us? In this one, God is saying, hey, if I am your father, if I am the master, if I am Lord, then where's my honor? And what's interesting is what, is not, what should not be questioned is God's love for them In reality, it is their love for God that ought to be questioned. Because in this honor that God deserves, we see them belittling the honor of God. So to belittle something is to like demean demean it or to make something seem unimportant while it is important. It's not that it devalues its importance. It kind of pushes it low. And so the word that is in Malachi that's used is despise. Okay? It's, it's three times in verse 6 and 7 uh, that, to, that they have despised God in, in his altar. Basically to show contempt for something, to think lightly of it, meaning to belittle it, or to regard something with contempt. They've despised the honor of God. Their question in verse 6, how have we despised your name? Okay? How have we despised your name? And God's answer is, well, by offering polluted food upon my altar, 
But you say, how have we polluted you? And God says, by saying that the Lord's table may be despised. And so, how have we despised you? Well, you've, you've done a polluted offering. Well, are you sure we polluted that? And he says, yes, because you have allowed my altar to be despised. Uh, basically, they despise the Lord by, polluted, by offering polluted sacrifices and allowing people to offer polluted sacrifices. So it's both, both doing it and allowing it. And so what is a polluted sacrifice? Verse 8 gets us there, okay? When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? The answer is yes. And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Answer, yes. Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? Answer is no. So take that kind of half-hearted, kind of, you know, kind of like half-hearted, not really great offering to a governor. Is he going to accept that? Of course not. But yet you do it to me as a living God. And so what were they called to do? They would actually be called to bring not just, you know, one of their flock. What was the offering they were called to bring before the Lord? It was the best. It was the one that without blemish. Bring the very best of your flock and offer it to the Lord. It's interesting. God challenges this idea. He says, now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to you. With such a gift from your hand, being that tainted one, will he show you favor? Will he show favor to any of you? It's basically that they, the ESV study Bible said they had relative orthodox beliefs, yet their, their beliefs had become a dead orthodoxy. So it's like they say right things with their mouth, but yet in their heart they live out kind of this dead orthodoxy. It's tempting to, uh, for, for God's people to think about something and to go through the motions of worship or maybe even to give offerings to the Lord and yet to do it in a half-hearted, check-the-box kind of way. And I think you picked this up in the prophets that God is saying, if you offer me sacrifices and you give me offerings and you do all these things, but your heart is not wholeheartedly in them, he rejects it. He's like, don't, get, don't bring that into my temple thinking it brings something of gain to you. If it is outward obedience without a heart that honors the Lord, uh-uh. What's interesting is yet we know we can outgive God. We can't outgive God. It's po- impossible for to, for us to outgive God. Yet often we begrudgingly worship Him with our wealth. You ever been there? If you're honest before the Lord at all, where it's like, oh, really? Can I really give this? It's God, God, are you sure you're really calling me? To do this, we may say the right things outwardly, but our lives can easily serve ourselves and not Him. And that's what's going on here in Malachi, but it also matches what's going on in Nehemiah. Remember last week we said that Malachi was a contemporary of Nehemiah. 
because they were dealing with very similar sins described among the people. Marriage to wives of other gods, um, neglect of paying tithes, disregard for the Sabbath, disregard for worship, uh, corruption among the priesthood, social injustice. It was kind of rampant what was going on in God's people. And they even protest that God's commands are simply too difficult to bear. So not only are they not having a whole heart in their worship, but then they come back as God is challenging them. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand? So basically, they take something by violence, they steal something, they bring the worst from their flocks. It's a restatement, and they're saying, this is so oppressive, God. Does your word and your commands have to be such a burden to my life? God says, cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock, being, you know, without blemish, the offering that's called. And then he vows it, basically, with his mouth, publicly, yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. Basically saying one thing with your mouth and yet doing another. God cannot be mocked. God knows our hearts. God knows your heart. God knows mine. He says, for I am a great king and my name will be feared among the nations. There's this, this devaluing or belittling of God's honor. But then there's this sense of guarding the honor of God, that God is expecting the priests, who are the leaders. Now, priest in the Old Testament is not Catholic priest. It's a different kind of priest. This is one who would uh, bring the people before the Lord and offer sacrifices to the Lord in worship. Uh, and so he was actually bringing people to the worship of God. And he was expecting those priests to rise up and stop this madness. All the people bringing half-hearted sacrifices and whatever. They were saying one thing with their mouth, yet doing something else. Verse 10, and God says, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. God was looking for them to, uh, to guard his honor. So disobedience uh, does come in the form of doing something that dishonors God. But to not, God, not guard God's honor when it's being defamed, God is also calling that out. Kind of like the sin of not doing what you should be doing. That is God guarding <laughs> Guard God's honor. I'm not writing that phrase ever again. But uh, the context matters here because this is spoken to God's people uh, who should be honoring him, yet aren't. So the priest ought to rise up and stop this way of living among God's people. He's not saying this to broadly to go after the nations. He's saying, priest, you ought to lead the people. And think about it. Anybody that's in leadership, Anybody that is a shepherd of God's people, anybody who is teaching or training or raising up a younger generation, we are called to to guard the honor of God. As a parent, I think it is our call 
to guard the honor of God. And God is speaking both to those who dishonor him and those who fail to guard it. Uh, And then comes in Malachi 2. He keeps going to these priests. No, priest, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I've already done it. So basically, since they failed to guard the purity of God's honor, then the Lord comes and brings what they have done upon them. And that's what verse 3 is. You're like, when's he going to get to the dung part? Here we go. Uh, So basically, what is that? That that is a defilement against the people. Uh, It is uh, any any kind of uh, excrement or anything like that is unclean and polluted. So hear this. The priests allow the pollution of God's altar... Now God is going to bring pollution and defilement back upon them. In a sense, he brings on them what they allowed and didn't guard in the worship uh, of God's people. Okay, Uh, Because this is what they should have done. This is what they should have done. In the order of Levi, who is the priestly line of God's people, my covenant with him, with Levi, was one of life and peace. And I gave them to him, meaning life and peace. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. Not like cowering in the corner, but he stood in awe of my name. That's that's the way this should have gone. Then then hear this of what it is to really love God's people. Verse 6. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness. He turned many from iniquity. Man, what a statement. Instead of allowing people to go into and rush headlong into iniquity and sin and rebellion, he was there as one who turned people away from sin and rebellion. Verse 7. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and the people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you've turned aside from the way. You've caused many to stumble by your instruction. You've corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord. Basically, that guarding God's honor, it stands, one who stands in awe and reverent fear of God. It turns people away from sin. It guards the knowledge of the Lord, and it does not cause them to stumble. And so that, so what's going on in, in among the people of God is they're dishonoring him, and they are allowing it to occur. And God is challenging them. But then we see the faithfulness to which God calls us. That when we experience the faithfulness of God, it's meant to transform us to the point of having us show faithfulness to people around us and faithfulness back to Him. So basically, God loves us, and therefore we love other people, right? We love because He first loved us. God forgives us, We forgive other people. says in uh, the letters of Paul, forgive as God in Christ forgave you. Right? So God loves us, we love others. God forgives us, we forgive others. God is faithful to us, then we are faithful back to him and to people 
around us. And then God asks the question in verse 10 of chapter 2, Have we not all one Father? Meaning Him as the Father of everyone. Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? So basically, since God has shown us his faithfulness, since God has created us, God has made us, why are we not living faithfully to what he has done? And why are we treating people, especially the, the, the people in, God, in the covenant community of God's people, why are we treating them poorly? Because there really is this faithfulness to obey God's word. God's faithful to us. We respond in faithfulness to him. He speaks, we listen. He commands, we obey. Judah has been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which the Lord loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. Verse 12, May the Lord cut off From the tents of Jacob, any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. So what is going on there? That God had called his people out from the nations, yet they were marrying daughters of foreign countries. But notice that God doesn't call them daughters of foreign nations. He calls them something else. He calls them daughters of a foreign god. Basically, they were devoted to another god. Don't take them as your wife, because obviously in biblical history, you know that Boaz, in the book of Ruth, took Ruth as his wife, a Moabite woman. And so God's word often pushes against the way the world operates. So just think for a moment, just the idea of the sexual ethic of uh, our world compared to the sexual ethic that God lays out in his word. How does God define sex? He says that it is a good gift, a very good gift that God made to be enjoyed inside the covenant marriage relationship between one man and one woman. Think of all the ways that our culture disagrees and pushes against that sentence. That is a very good gift of God to be enjoyed inside the covenant relationship of marriage between one man and one woman. That's the biblical account of sexuality. And yet our culture often says the opposite. Now before we go and get on our high horse, let's think of all the ways that we live and think, and maybe even daydream, which are opposite of that sentence. It's interesting. God gives us his word. God gives us his, good, his way that life works. God says, trust me. Yet, our world, and probably oftentimes the, nature, the sin nature that wars against God's word inside of us, what do we say? Back in verse 13, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it. And so do I. It's interesting. God gives us his word, and yet something in us says, you know what, I know better. 
I know how to do quadratics. I know how to play golf. I know how to live life. I know better than what God is saying. God gives us his word, and yet we often do life how we think. Now, here's the thing. The beautiful part of the prophets is that even when we feel that God's word is a weary or weary toll on us, He's telling us these things so that we might see how we have have strayed, how we have uh, gone astray, how we have lived life on our own terms. He's not saying that just so that you can go beat yourself up. He's saying that so that you and I might see it and return back to him, that we might humble ourselves before him, that we say, God, it's amazing how I think I know better and I, I've lived life this way, yet I return to you. Would you forgive me? Would you restore me? Would I be a recipient of your grace and your mercy? Because the thing about biblical conviction is it is not meant to condemn. It is, it is God's patience that draws us to, to repentance. There will be a day. There will be a judgment day. You will stand before the Lord eventually. But right now, God, in his patience, is showing us the ways that we think we know better. And he is calling us back to him. Back to faithfully walking with him. And then there's the idea of being faithful to the covenants that we make. Basically, because then then we get this idea of divorce. Uh, And this is the second thing you do. So not only do you do the first of, of, uh, of defi- defaming uh, God's, God's law, taking uh, foreign, uh, the wives of foreign gods, this is the second thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards your offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. So you know God's not listening to you, and you weep. God, please. But you say, why does he not do this? Because the Lord has, was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Now there's a lot of context to understand what divorce uh, and marriage looks like. But God, basically God is saying a covenant, a bond, is like his covenant love for his people when we, fate, when we bind ourselves in a covenant relationship of marriage, it is meant to be one of faithfulness. Yet, here God's people were just basically denying and faithless to the wives of their youth. Now, the scriptures speak to uh, times where God allows divorce. Uh, and they are unfaithfulness of a spouse and abandonment. Uh, yet, uh, those, aren't, those aren't meant to be automatic uh, opt-out clauses. Though, because God takes covenants very seriously, 
But I think in our culture and what was going on in this day was the ease of divorce. You know what? I'm done. And they would just walk. And we live in a culture where our commitments to covenants that we make is very light. Because it's the covenant faithfulness of God that we get to experience that then calls us to covenant faithfulness towards each other. Towards each other broadly and then specifically in the bond of marriage. And what was going on among the people of that day was that they were just walking out. They were done. They were leaving. They were moving on to better things. And God was saying, no. God was saying, no. And now these last two, I'll be honest, when we start talking about faithfulness to God's word and faithfulness to covenants, I would imagine that we've all just got our toes stepped on. That every one of us in some way, shape, or form has like, ooh, uh, you know what? I probably uh, am put on the words of this page uh, by the Lord. And I think it's at that point that some people will say, you know what? I, I, I need to get out of here. I need to not listen to this. I need to block my ears. Or how could he or how could God say that? That the intent of these things spoken by God to his people is to call us back to him. That we would humble ourselves before the Lord. Not that we would run away from him. He is faithful to us. We uh, respond in faithfulness to him. That's the gospel. Is when we are faithless, what did God do? Did he cast us off? No, he sent his son to the cross. So pay for our sin and then rose from the dead to give us life. If you have faith in Christ, it, that is the evidence. Uh, the, the cross is the evidence that God's faithfulness comes to us. And then we faithfully respond in the way that we live. God is faithful to his covenant people. We respond in faithfulness to him. Let's pray. God, I ask that, uh, that you would take the words of Malachi, written thousands of years ago, 400 years or so before Christ. God, take the words that you spoke to that people. God, help us to see that our hearts are not very different, that we kind of live half-hearted. We don't take you at your word. We, uh, we say one thing and then we do another. Uh, God, we even despise your commands and think they're too hard for us. So God, I pray that as we might be feeling that, would you draw us to you? Would you see it, help us to see that life is found in you and you alone? God, I pray that even as some are hearing this, that you would draw people to know you for the first time. God, that this is not just a, me- a, a message of morality. It's a message of salvation that leads to us understanding and embracing your covenant faithfulness to us. God, I pray that that would come through this morning by your spirit and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.